most of the characters we just heard about in our readings from Mark 15 have two things in common. First, they're all rebels. They're all deeply committed to leading an insurrection, to ruling on the thrones of their own hearts. And they don't care who they have to slander or cheat or murder to stay there. But the second thing that this cast of characters holds in common is that no one can possibly convince any of them that they're actually rebels. The angry crowd certainly didn't see themselves as rebels. They saw themselves as the perpetually oppressed, the ones who are always getting the raw deal at the expense of the wealthy and the powerful. And in some respects, they had good reasons for feeling this way. But when you feel like you're always a victim, whether you really are or not, you begin feeling entitled to a designer salvation, to redemption on your own terms from whatever's most difficult about your circumstances. And the crowds were angry now because their dreams for redemption on their own terms were clearly dead. The one that they had hailed as the Messiah, that the son of David, the king of the Jews, only a few days before with palm branches, this man clearly was not going to bring salvation wielding a sword of justice like they wanted. And so they committed the same act of rebellion against God that their fathers had in the days of Samuel. And they demanded that God give them a king like all the nations around them. And since God refused to do this, they cried out, Crucify! Crucify! In response to the king God had given them. They were rebels, and they believed their cause was just. The one that they had to convince was ironically a symbol of the wealth and the power and the oppression that they resented so much. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Palestine, he had seen his fair share of rebels over the years in his dusty little province. In fact, he'd probably condemned most of them himself. And so the idea that he might be a rebel was laughable to Pilate, as it is to anyone who's accustomed to wielding economic and social and military power. But what is also common among such people is their particular kind of rebellion against God. Giving out self-serving, so-called justice that in reality makes a mockery of true justice. Pilate was a crowd pleaser. He cared most about appeasing the people because he cared most about his own social comfort and job security and possible promotion in the Roman government. Angry people would endanger what Pilate actually worshipped most, which was his own comfort. And so not only was he most concerned to convince Rome that he, Pilate, wasn't a rebel, he was just as concerned to convince Rome that no rebels would be tolerated on his watch, even if it meant that an innocent man had to die to prove it. Pilate may not have been a rebel against Rome, but he was a rebel against God's justice and God's righteousness. 
He condemned the holy God of the universe standing in front of him in a blood-stained tunic so that he could be sure to please the right people in his social circles. The soldiers, under Pilate's authority, also showed that they were rebels by their treatment of Jesus. Even after Jesus was severely whipped by strips of leather with pieces of bone and rock and metal tied to the ends, so horrifying that many people actually died from it, Even after that, the soldiers had a period of time to be alone with Jesus before his crucifixion. And it was a time for their own sport. A party of commiserating together and dealing out more violence on a helpless Jew who represented for them probably everything they hated about being assigned to the legions in Palestine. They wouldn't dare rebel against their own superior officers but they confidently rebelled against their creator by spitting on him and laughing at him and beating thorns into his head merely for sadistic pleasure. But the furthest thing from any of their minds was that they might be rebels themselves. The entire reason for their existence in the Roman province of Palestine was to hunt and kill rebels. And one of the perks of the job was that abusing rebels could just be so fun. But as many of us know, it's the chief priests, it's the Pharisees who were the most convinced that they were not rebels against God. In fact, they were most convinced that they were God's closest friends, most entrusted by God to do his work, his most faithful sons because of their right beliefs and their right behavior. In fact, for them, handing Jesus over to be destroyed was seen by them as their chief act of service and devotion to God, their chief evidence of not being a rebel at all. And the almost comical irony is that this opportunity gave them the chance to prove to the hated Roman governor that they weren't political rebels either. But the Pharisees did all they were doing out of envy, coveting the fame of Jesus, hating their brother, hating their one true God in their heart, leading them to murder. They had broken every commandment on the path of destruction they were now on. Their rebellion against God was the most complete of them all. And all of these characters sit in great contrast to the two who are left. The two remaining men in this account knew they were rebels. They knew it deep down on levels that no one else could understand. One of them had been a self-proclaimed rebel for a long time, cocky and proud of it, like a leather-clad rock star. A man named Jesus, Jesus, son of Abba, called Jesus Barabbas, as the Gospel of Matthew calls him. Barabbas was a robber, a murderer, and a political terrorist against Rome who had just been arrested in a recent uprising against the state. And he was set to die, maybe even that day, 
And that was just for the crimes Rome knew about. Barabbas himself probably knew of far more. The other person who knew he was a rebel was also named Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, called the Christ, the Anointed One. And he knew he was a rebel, but in an entirely different way. Sure, Jesus was a rebel in the sense that he was outside the box. He didn't fit into categories that people usually make for other people. He said and did things all the time that were regularly surprising and even shocking. But we often make too much of this in American Christian circles, more because we want a Jesus who is a social rebel, because we've always loved social rebels. We want a Jesus who appeals to our love of cowboys and mavericks and rock stars. And even though Jesus was a social rebel to some extent, he would actually be labeled a self-righteous prude by much of our culture, actually, as well. Jesus was a rebel. But this passage presents him as a different kind of rebel than John Wayne or Alice Cooper or even our favorite theologians or pastors who we love because of how they stand against the grain. No, this passage presents Jesus as a rebel because it presents him as a condemned criminal. It presents him as someone given a guilty sentence in multiple courts, someone who undergoes all the social stigma of truly being considered a rebel. He's spit upon and beaten and mocked. He's standing in front of crowds that are literally telling him that they wish he would just go and die and the worst possible death that they can think of. Jesus is treated with the same kind of social stigma as a captured terrorist would be treated in Western Europe right now, only much, much worse. But what makes it all matter is that Jesus knows the real rebellion he's being charged with. He knows that he is here at this agonizing moment Not because the Pharisees or the Roman governor or even the crowds think that he is a social or political rebel. He knows that he's here because his own father, the God of heaven and earth, is placing upon him a far worse charge than mere treason. He's here bearing the guilt for gossip, for manipulation for pornography, for prostitution, for white lies, for slander, for self-righteousness, for abuse against women and children, for slavery, for abortion, for shaming other people, for self-hatred, and for so many other sins committed by millions and millions of people who have lived before him and who would live forevermore. After Jesus was nailed to the cross, the soldiers then moved to cast lots for his clothing. Such heartless, sadistic rebels against God, they played games of chance and dice 
for God's dirty, sweaty, and bloody clothing. But he hung above them, bleeding and gasping for air, looking down on them, knowing that if grace would open their hearts to believe, he would give them an exchange that they would never forget. He would take their clothes of violence and abuse and theft, and he would wear them himself on the cross while clothing them with something much better than a tunic. He would give them his very own righteousness as a gift. And the same held true for the others. Pilate was called to exchange his rebellious desire for comfort and security for a true rest. A rest that removes the storms of your heart regardless of what else is going on. The crowds were called to exchange their demand for a political revolutionary for the gifts of a king who would conquer their very own guilt and their death. And the Pharisees were called to be set free from the exhausting work of being a spiritual accountant, law-keeping, blaming, always afraid because they knew deep down that their kind of goodness wasn't enough. Instead, they could have had the joy of being the true sons of Abraham, having Abraham's faith and a relationship with Abraham's God. And so what about our rebellion? What kind of rebels are we at the foot of the cross this evening? Are you a vengeful soldier? Glad to see your enemies suffer, even if it's by your own hand in some way. Rejoicing over the calamity of others, even taking advantage of their loss as your gain. Are you a people-pleasing Roman governor? You'll say or do anything to keep the peace, not because it's loving, but because it helps you stay socially comfortable and risk-free. Are you a disappointed member of the crowd? Are you dissatisfied and complaining and entitled because the kind of blessings and salvation God seems to be offering you right now in your circumstances isn't the kind of Messiah you're looking for. Or maybe worst of all, we could be the most blind kind of rebel there is. The kind that carries a tape measure for sin and rebellion in our back pockets. The kind who always measures it superficially when we use it on ourselves. The pious and religious rebel. Our own rebellion is always only skin deep in our view, but beneath it all can be a hard and dark heart that's never examined because it's fully convinced that the real rebels are always somebody else. Whichever kind we are, and at times we're all of them. One of the many calls of this passage is to run to the freedom given to Barabbas. We're called to see ourselves spiritually as we truly are apart from God's grace. To see ourselves as the condemned criminal. 
The rebel whose only cause is himself or herself, locked in a cell, waiting for a judgment that we have long deserved and long earned, not meted out by a corrupt world, but falling like pure lightning from a God whose judgments are so righteous that they're worthy of praise in themselves. But this passage doesn't leave us doomed rebels. Just like it doesn't leave Barabbas a doomed rebel. It holds out for us an innocent king who is condemned as a rebel, exchanging his life for ours. As the Apostle Peter would later write when he thought of Good Friday, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the rebel for the innocent that he might bring us to God. Rebels can now become children, children of God. So see your rebellion laid upon him as he hangs on the cross. See his righteousness given to you and receive it all as a free gift. Receive it all by faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, as this passage clearly tells us, we are all rebels. We are all truly condemned before you, apart from your Son. He bore the cross that we deserved. He was the innocent lamb. And the iniquities of us all was laid on him as we read earlier. Father, for those of us who are here tonight feeling guilty, may they not leave here feeling the same. May they see their guilt laid upon the Lord Jesus. May they see their rebellion exchanged for his righteousness and his innocence and his life. May they see him as the priest who bleeds from the cross, making way for them with the sound of the veil being torn in this passage ring in their ears because it means that we have full acceptance and full access to you. And so we, may we know this joy as we go away tonight. May we know the joy of the price Jesus paid, that we know the joy of being set free. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Amen.